Greetings. This is Dr. Brian Stepanenko, and today we'll be mapping dysbiosis after deployment on the 15-minute matrix with Andrea Nakayama. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Brian Stepanenko. Dr. Stepanenko is an active duty Army family physician who plans to serve a full career healing and optimizing our nation's heroes and their family members. He's a subject matter expert, educator, and clinical champion for functional medicine and shared medical appointments in the military health system, and a strong advocate for using the functional medicine frameworks and operating systems to deliver personalized lifestyle and performance medicine to the warfighter community. Dr. Stepanenko, thank you for your service and welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Andrea, I can't thank you enough for the invite and thank you for your recent focus and attention on supporting the military community. Happy to be on. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I hope to do more to support the community. And there are concepts that are both familiar and unfamiliar to me and likely others that are listening. So I'm going to start with a quick grounding of the familiar and then lean into your expertise for the unfamiliar. Does that work for you? Yes, definitely. If you don't mind, I'll just get the disclaimer out of the way. The thoughts and opinions expressed here by myself are those of my own, do not represent any DOD, governmental agency, military or non-military, specifically the DHA or military health system. Thank you for stating that. I can imagine that's important to state and so true for all of us that we're not representing any community. We represent our own opinion. So I appreciate you saying that. So Dr. Stepanenko, we're talking about dysbiosis after deployment and dysbiosis is of course an imbalance between the types of organisms present in a person's microflora, especially within the gut that can contribute to a range of health challenges. But in order to explore how dysbiosis is impacted by deployment, in other words, how deployment is a trigger for dysbiosis, I'm wondering if you can explain what's meant by deployment and what the various conditions of deployment might actually look like. Fantastic. Thank you for the opportunity to orient. So in order to understand in relation to deployment, and even before defining that, I I really want to take a step back and define military operational environment. And in the military functional medicine community that that has been growing, uh, we've been talking about here's how we communicate outwardly and inwardly. 
so defining the military operational environment is critical to understanding the rest of just about everything. There is the garrison environment, the training environment, and the deployed environment. So those three main areas. Garrison means back at home, and that's typically while on active duty and back with your unit. There's a lot of formal and informal training that occurs and a a lot of executing your primary job back in garrison. But then there are training pathways and training environments that are very intense schooling periods, training up for professional expertise, typically referred to as an MOS, and that's on the Army side of things. But there are other specialty schools that gain additional skills, knowledge, and abilities that can then make you a better warfighter or qualify you for a special force community. Those training pathways in themselves are a different environment. And then the deployed setting and the deployed environment. These can be anywhere from one to 12 months at a time. And that is when we talk about conventional side of the house, deployments can be short, although typically six to 12 months, typically six to nine months, and can be in support of humanitarian efforts. So supporting personnel or people and often displaced personnel, or they can be combatant and it can be in relation to wartime efforts and directly supporting the fight in one way, shape or form. So deployed settings can be and are outside of the continental US. There's different theaters of deployment and that depends on where you're being sent to, typically what continent. So many variations there. I'm glad you grounded us in that reality because I think if we are supporting people who are going through these various phases or even experiencing or going through deployment or coming back from deployment, it helps us to kind of ground and understand what that might mean. I know you think through the functional medicine matrix quite a bit. And I'm wondering if we can talk into the antecedents that might lead to dysbiosis when we're discussing it in relation to deployment. Sure, definitely. Before enumerating on a few of the antecedents and then later triggers and mediators, I just want to share with you uh, one way that the military functional medicine community that we've been communicating about what's relevant, what do we look for and the common and uncommon antecedents, triggers, and mediators. We have a a structured way of organizing the general areas. The mnemonic is STAIND, S-T-A-I-N-D. And for S, we talk about sleep, stress, and SNPs. T, we talk about trauma, toxins, tablets. A, we talk about allergies and the full spectrum, so allergies, sensitivities, and intolerances. A also is the autoimmune, so loss of self-tolerance. And then I is infections and ingestions. And ingestions is kind of the self-medicating behaviors and some of those non-health-promoting activities like smoking. N is nutritional excesses and deficiencies. And in that N area, we talk about the standard military American diet, which tends to be more processed and preservative-containing, additive-containing, but also heavy on energy drinks, stimulant use, and even like pre-workout stimulant or nutrition or performance supplementation. And one thing I want to mention here before I touch on the D is deficiencies that are common in the military community, vitamin D 
extremely common. There were some studies that showed about 70% of those in uniform are deficient in vitamin D. Typically, we show up zero dark 30 and leave after the sun is going down and are covered from head to toe, even though we're out in the hot sun. Right. Omega-3 to omega-6 ratios are typically off. And there's also heavy metal exposure in the community that can sometimes shift the balance away from optimal for iron, magnesium, and zinc. So some of the the foundations that we need for health right there in the deficiency arena. You got it. And then the D is the dysbiosis or digestion issues. And we'll touch on some of these areas. Uh, I was going to focus on several of them, and I'll highlight sleep, stress, trauma, tablets, infections, and ingestions, which I think are the most important for us to touch on. That's a brilliant model, by the way, to really get everybody thinking through essentially the matrix, you know, not thinking dysbiosis is one thing, but how we approach it for this population in particular. So why don't you go ahead and dive in where you were going to start with one of my favorite topics, the non-negotiable of sleep. Yes, definitely. So there was a fantastic study done by RAND Corporation in 2015 on sleep in the military. And they showed that about 85% of the military individuals studied had clinically relevant sleep disorders. About half of them actually had sleep apnea issues, and almost 60% of them had some medical comorbidities, majority of those being depression, anxiety, PTSD, TBI injuries, or chronic pain issues. And about 25% of the group studied had insomnia. Now, here's what's notable. Uh, in addition to that, it was that almost 50% of them had insufficient sleep, meaning less than six hours per night of sleep. Now, I know the recommendation from a lot of sleep communities, academic communities, and professional communities says seven hours or more. But at least half of these individuals, almost half, were getting less than six hours per night, 40% of them less than five hours per night. So the impact of that is that you're going to make different decisions when you're sleep deprived, craving the fats, craving the sweets, craving the comfort foods. You're going to put less thought into what you're putting on your plate when you're in the dining facilities or when you're presented with the easy option of eat this here, it's ready for you. Or do you want to go and prep something yourself or make the effort by eating something that doesn't taste as great, but may be better for you. So the ability to make better decisions is definitely impacted. So what they put on their plate, what they put in their mouth, and how they choose to fuel their energy needs and their attention demands throughout the day are going to be very different. So we're definitely talking about antecedents when we're talking about sleep here. Yeah, and we know more now about how sleep impacts the microbiome and it supports detoxification. So we then see an upstream, as you said, antecedent that's impacting the body's ability to do other regulatory functions. And when we talk about physiologic stressors and chronic sleep deprivation being a physiologic stressor, that definitely influences and changes your microbial balance and can lead to imbalance. So yes, for all the reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I kind of want to follow this thread through because I'm seeing ways that 
we all in functional medicine and functional nutrition, we can start to serve by focusing on these non-negotiables. So when we're talking about sleep deficiencies in this situation, are there ways we can mediate the lack of sleep? Yes. So once again, uh, the training pathways uh, through Walter Reed, where we teach the military functional medicine community, we say there's controllables and non-controllables. So you want to control the controllables. And one controllable for some personal protective lifestyle approach to this would be self-monitoring, helping people track their sleep, quantity and quality, and to see not only are you getting enough and was it restful, but what were you doing while you were sleeping? I mentioned to you those statistics about sleep apnea prevalence in the community, as well as knowing that that stress and high performance demands, high physical demands is part of the picture. You want some capability of that soldier being able to monitor not only accelerometry throughout night, you know, are they up, are they down? Some wearable devices track HRV, heart rate variability, which if you can measure at minimum movement, so sleep quantity and quality, and then stress, at minimum, that capability allows the individual to look back on days where they wake up feeling rested or nighttime sleeps after, let's say, drinking out with the rest of the unit. And they're going to see the impact on their quality of sleep. And they're going to see the impact and the trends on how they feel cognitively and physically. And a lot of these devices give some composite measure of readiness or recovery. If they see that they're not recovering, and they feel like crud after doing X, Y, Z before sleep, they're going to start to make better decisions with that awareness. Now, some of these wearables also track oxygen levels while sleeping. Just an example, there's Garmin watches. Certain Garmin watches have all of the capabilities that I mentioned in addition to oxygen levels while sleeping. And if you've got readings that say, wow, your oxygen level dipped down into the 60s or 70s, maybe you should be evaluated by your doc then that's going to give a lot of great information to help people not only make better decisions, but to ask for help to make sense of some of the data that they might be getting. I think that's probably one of the easiest controllables to arm people with information to make better decisions and to know when to ask for help. Yeah, I love thinking about it through the controllables and the non-controllables. It becomes part of our non-negotiables. And I am, of course, a lover of tracking because I think that's where we get our N of one information that helps us to really understand what's going on in our bodies, especially with the appropriate guidance. I feel like we could do an entire series <laughs> on sleep alone, but actually on each of the stained arenas, I do want to touch on trauma, which is a huge topic, but I'm wondering if we could go there next and if I can beg you to come back at some point to talk about some of the others. Sure. So trauma, in talking about stress, I was going to talk about psychological trauma, which is a whole other area that I'd love to make sure we touch on, but specifically talking about traumatic brain injury and even more so mild traumatic brain injury, especially the type that people might not have gotten care for, might not have sought care for, but definitely can experience the downstream impacts of. This is something of high prevalence and high attention, especially since 2019. There was a push from the president down, congressional push for warfighter brain health and suicide awareness and warfighter brain health and suicide prevention. So when we talk about TBI specifically, this is relevant 
to the gut function, but also to the ability to get restful sleep, which you know we just touched on. TBIs can rattle the central portions of the brainstem that control breathing while sleeping. And you can have some very fit individuals in front of you getting non-restful sleep, suffering from chronic sleep deprivation, but that could be because of central sleep apnea surprisingly high prevalence, especially in special operation community members. So TBIs related to sleep breathing disorders, that's a real thing that you should have a low threshold, especially if you have a high performer individual in front of you that's suffered TBIs, and even more so if they're in special operation community because of blast-related traumatic brain injury. That's a whole other ball of wax. But specifically for gut function and gut dysfunction that can lead to dysbiosis, this can impact vagal tone. And when we talk about neurogastric communication pathways and that ability to drop into the feed and breed, the rest and, and restore modes, that communication with the gastric pathways and everything involved, meaning secretion of enzymes, secretion of gastric juices and gastric and intestinal motility, that's setting you up for poor digestion and maldigestion, malabsorption, poor breakdown of food products. And when we talk about poor breakdown of food products, lack of acid, gastric acid, or lack of digestive enzymes, that's setting the stage for something like SIBO. So something like intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I use a cat's analogy and feeding the cats analogy to connect with the patients, but then also to communicate with other providers on what works when talking to the patient. If you feed the cats, the stray cats in your neighborhood, what happens? They multiply and they keep coming back for more. So essentially what we're doing is we're getting poor breakdown of food products that are luring and feeding the cats in the wrong neighborhood. So the flora that should be contained and, and maintained to the large intestine then has food source up in the small intestine. So you're feeding the cats in the wrong neighborhood and they're gonna do exactly what you'd expect them to do. So those postprandial symptoms looking out for those, looking for some inflammatory skin conditions, maybe even some mental health changes that occurred around the time of, you know, following a TBI. Hey, I got blown up or I got this head injury or I got these two head injuries back to back or I went to this training pathway and had a lot of shoulder-fired rocket-propelled grenade use and ever since then these things have changed. And now my gut function, I've got IBS diagnosis, I've got you know, some other gut function issues. That's where we could really see some of this brain health translating to impaired gut health. And it can be because of motility issues, secretion issues. The question then becomes, what the heck can we do about it? Yeah, or what can yeah we ask I was going to ask you, like, where do you we, when it. we think about dysbiosis, I mean, it is an entire matrix to think through. And that history mm -hmm. is so important and I think we have too many practitioners who are just trying the protocol yeah. for the dysbiosis, not really taking the time to recognize and address all of that story and history. So what do we do about it? I've got three main things that I would say we should consider and definitely discuss with the patient. One, you can consider GI consults for motility and emptying studies. That's a real thing. You might even be able to initiate some of those at the PCM level or some specialty levels. Then another area would be looking at supplementing, supplementing with digestive enzymes or doing some testing with betaine HCL to see if they need some additional hydrochloric acid with breaking down protein containing meals. So supplementation is something that you can explore and consider. Actually, one awesome nugget 
brought up recently during that Walter Reed training pathway was that Bino. Bino is actually a digestive enzyme supplement, super affordable, over-the-counter and available. I didn't think it was a digestive enzyme. I thought it was just for gas and flatulence, but surprisingly, that's, that's an option. The other third area that I'd say that we can definitely pay some attention to and is a controllable is vagal tone exercises. So Datis Karazian talks about how do you retone or increase vagal tone after a head injury and vagal tone exercises is part of your equation of how you heal impaired vagal tone. So exercises like, and I break this down for the patient, I talk about, hey, in the shower and in the car. So in the shower, gargling water aggressively to where you're making bubbles, it's coming out of your mouth, gargling aggressively. Then also singing loudly. When you shower, why not? Elevating that palate, that soft palate in the back is telling you that you're doing the job of activating the vagal tone. Another third one, which, uh, you know, just the reality of it, I won't be shy about talking about it, but if people are peeing in the shower, activating starting and stopping your stream is activating that pelvic floor, and that is activating that vagal tone. Next one, in the car. So singing loudly, listening to music that you really enjoy. Once again, that act of singing loudly, elevating that soft palate in the back is engaging that vagal tone. But then stoplight breathing, or every time you hit a stoplight, trying to do belly breaths, and maybe a hand on the chest, hand on the belly, engaging that belly breaths. You might even be able to convince your patients to pair that with Kegels. So you basically engage the belly breathing and you incorporate Kegels. I believe it's with the exhale. Yes. Um, engaging the Kegels. You can sell them on the idea of that not only engaging vagal tone, but being helpful for staying power and sexual function. There so we go. That's a whole other discussion. Double sell. Yeah. And we will link to episode 84, Mapping Vagal Nerve Stimulation with Dr. Navaz Habib. I love that you're talking about things that cost nothing or are low cost to be able to engage the patient in supporting their dysbiosis or the remedying of their dysbiosis. My brain's going in a million areas. I do want to talk to you further. I'm going to wrap us up here unless there's anything else that you want to share that you wish clinicians knew in serving this population who has dysbiosis that we could be thinking about top of mind. I would say do not underestimate the power of community, especially with the military community where the risk is assumed by everybody, but what determines whether I go home each day is the safety net of the individuals to the left and right of me. So seeing people that look like me that I resonate with that have experienced this hardship before, navigated it successfully, those are individuals that we need to make sure others get a chance to meet. And in our community, the best thing that we can do is introduce two people that want to get healthy to each other, but also show someone that they relate to as experiencing that hardship and navigating it successfully. And there's so many conversations that will be had outside of a clinical setting if all you do is introduce them to each other. Such an important message. Dr. Stepanenko, thank you so much again for your service on many levels. And I look forward to future conversations with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. 
The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 